Hey dads, ever since the early days of man's history, war has been a reality. And never has another piece of real estate been fought over more than that parcel of ground called the Holy Land. In this episode, Brother Mo, my friend and a church planter in Israel, joins me to report on what it's like on the ground right now, as well as to talk about raising up our children to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We've had a couple of rockets that fell close enough that we could hear them, Mm. but not feel them. And I always tell people, if you hear a rocket, you hear a boom and you don't feel it, you're okay. If you hear a boom and you feel it, then that that got pretty close. How to control yourself and how to control a bad situation and do something hard has been just extremely valuable from a a life skills perspective. Mm. Uh, Our children have stood up not to bullies that are engaging them, but to other people that are being bullied in their sphere because they know how to handle it and they know how to handle it in a safe way for everybody involved. Mm. And it's been a great testimony to their peers. This episode runs quite a bit longer than the usual, but I expect you will gain from the information and inspiration as I did. I also hope Brother Mo's insights will not only inspire you with some great ideas for involving your kids in real ministry, but also encourage you to love and pray for the Jewish people. Through wisdom is in-house builded, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Hi friends, welcome to the Treasure Box Books Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Ching, a redeemed child of God, happy husband and homeschooling dad, and lifelong lover of good books. Fellow dad, are you eager to fill your children's hearts with truth and faith and wisdom and courage? Do you long to build growing, lasting, God-centered relationships with your family? If you're ready to inspire and equip your children to walk with God by learning and living together, then come join us on our journey, and let's go find the treasures in books. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on here today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, brother. I've been looking forward to this, and I'm sure we're going to have an interesting conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Brother Mo, how many years have you been in Israel? Uh, We arrived here in late 2015, so we're just finishing up our eighth year in the country. Now, before we go any further, can you tell us briefly how the Lord saved you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I came from a, a typical not very religious Roman Catholic background, Roman Catholic light. Uh, My family's from Puerto Rico, so we, uh, I have memories of uh, attending midnight mass in Spanish, Mm. not understanding hardly anything that was going on. But again, it was Easter and Christmas, if if that, Mm. most of my childhood. There was a brief period of time from, let's say, the ages of around eight till about 11 or so, where my family attended a Southern Baptist church in New Mexico. Mm. And uh, I remember that time very fondly. That was what I considered to be my first encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. And even made a profession of faith, was baptized, and uh, again, just had fond memories of it. But as soon as I turned 13, we moved to a different place, and there was no root of the the gospel in my heart. Mm. You know, as I 
went through that teenage and early adult years, I completely lived for myself. There was no thought of God, no consequence or realization of sin. Hmm. But if you would have asked me at any point in those years, you know, are you a Christian? I would have said yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I would have said yes, but it was pretty much just the, the typical American cultural understanding of Jesus, but not anything that had any spiritual depth. Mm. Uh, so that's how I lived my life. Joined the military and was stationed in Germany and married my wife uh, somewhere in that transition. My wife was saved at an independent Baptist church in mm. Georgia at the age of 16 mm. and legitimately born again. Mm. She was uh, backslidden when we met, which is why she married a guy like myself at the <laughs> time and uh, i remember that the depth of our spiritual conversation when we got married was was you know are you a christian yeah are you a christian yeah okay and that was that was pretty much it mm. when we moved to germany the lord really started getting a hold of my wife and she turned her heart fully back to him mm. and then with clear spiritual eyes she was able to look at me or her husband and realize that i was not born again she mm. she could see that pretty clearly so she began to just gently minister to me mm. i could see a change in her life i could see a change in her attitude and that is what kind of started me on the road to asking some very serious questions about mm. what i believe and it was uh november 20th 2004 so coming up on my spiritual birthday the straw that broke the camel's back if you will was uh, my wife renting the movie The Passion of the Christ, which mm. I, I, I wouldn't recommend necessarily for its doctrinal teachings, but mm -hmm. two things really made an impact on me that night. Number one, that it was a very long movie, mm -hmm. and it was a very graphic movie. Yeah. Uh, and I'd never for that length of time considered the brutality mm. that Jesus Christ endured for me. Mm. And there was just something about the length of time and the images that the Lord just used. And after, you know, we, my wife and I just watched it in the privacy of our home. After the, mo the movie was over, I just quietly retired to my bedroom. And there was a, a little crawl space uh, between our bed and, and the wall and mm. uh, just enough space for uh, a body. And uh, <laughs> I just laid down in that little space and prayed, not like I prayed when I was, you know, a child mm. at that church in New Mexico, but honestly had a conversation with the Lord that was not mm. led or directed by somebody else, not a repeat after me kind of a situation mm. and uh, repented of my sin and, uh, and basically said, Lord, if that's what you require to be righteous, then I could never pay that. And I believe that Jesus paid that on my behalf. Mm. And new creature, brother, it was uh, mm. night and day. I, I wish I could say that, you know, I completely changed and reformed my ways after immediately after that. But what I can tell you is immediately after that, I had somebody else living inside of me mm -hmm. that was convicting me of sin and saying, hey, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. You you can, you will never be happy doing that. You are you will be massively uncomfortable doing that. Mm. And uh, I would later find out that that was the Holy Spirit indwelling me, and and uh, incredibly thankful for it. Amen, amen. So your wife was saved as a teenager, and it was her testimony that helped. Was there a church in Germany that was that she was began attending? Is that what you said? Not at the time, but before I got saved, she wanted to start go to going to a church, and we went to a kind of a contemporary international church. Mm. You know, she had a Baptist background. I had mm. a Baptist-ish background. And uh, <laughs> so we just found this like international Baptist church, which was, you know, just your typical, very, very light, very effeminate, very, <laughs> I sat in the back with sunglasses on half the time, 
when I did go, very, very little impact on me. <laughs> but when I uh, was deployed to Afghanistan, my wife found what would be our home church in the church where I got trained in. Okay. And she instantly knew what she was looking for and said, this is it. Mm. And uh, she desperately wanted to go, but she knew that if I came back home, and I was still a baby, baby, baby Christian at this point. Yeah. So she knew me well enough to know that if I came back and she said, honey, we got to go to this church, then the, the man in me would have instantly said, well, you know, uh, I get to decide what church we go to just because you like, you know, uh, just the flesh, brother. Right. And uh, so she was very wise and she just said, hey, you know what, let's go check this place out on a Wednesday night. And, uh, you know, if you like it, great. If you don't like it, you know, no big deal. And so I said, okay, yeah, we'll go check it out. And brother just went and the Bible was preached mm. and I could identify with the, especially the men of the church. You know, mm. one of the big problems that I had with Christianity growing up was I didn't really find any male role yeah. models that I could pattern myself off, that I wanted to pattern myself right. off of. Yeah. And in this church, I, I, and it wasn't that, you know, it was a bunch of chest beating Neanderthal ogres, but they were men mm. who loved God and loved their families mm. and they laughed they had joy they wept they cared for souls and i just mm. said you know what that's something i can follow and we started attending from that night ever since amen two things you just said i want to follow up on one is the way a wife influences her husband and i've seen this when i was on a foreign field and growing up in a pastor's home and the way a christian wife influences her husband is not by telling him what he ought to do he will not listen my wife figured that out within a few years of getting married. If she wanted me to do something, she couldn't tell me to do it. She had to maybe present me with an idea, but let me make the decision. And it sounds like you have a wise wife, as, uh, as I do, <laughs> by God's grace. Something else I want to follow up on you just said, I've been seeing it borne out to the past few years with a testimony like you just gave, that one of the reasons that we don't see more men in church is that they're being presented with an effeminized version of Christianity. And Christianity is not effeminate. In fact, when I was preaching this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul mentions, such were some of you. And in that list, there were effeminate men, men who were lacking masculinity, and turn on TV or internet, and the kind of Christianity that men, unsaved men, see is not really masculine. And that's a shame. That's encouraging to know about that church there. Had some men in it. That's what we need everywhere. Well, brother, you've been in Israel for about eight years. Can you tell us about some of the ministry opportunities the Lord has given you there? We have tried and done a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's been quite a ride. I almost wish I could say that, you know, we got here and we knew exactly what we we're going to do. And mm -hmm. we just uh, started pounding on that rock, you know. Yeah. But, uh, brother, we've been involved in so many different things. We have been involved in a number of different helping organizations hmm. that do everything from minister to new Jewish immigrants to Israel from around hmm. the world. I taught a Bible study in an Arabic Baptist church in Nazareth for a year, taught the book of Ephesians, translated into Arabic, since Arabic is not one of the languages that I'm attempting to learn at this moment. Um, <laughs> that was a quite a, an amazing journey, preached in that church every so often as well. Mm. And we have helped, been involved in different uh, opportunities with soldiers. Uh, as a mm. former soldier, I kind of identify with that uh, demographic very well. Yeah. And for three years, I pastored a church in Tel Aviv, South Tel Aviv, which mm. is like the immigrant section of Tel Aviv. So it was a primarily mm. Filipino congregation. 
They were all working as medical personnel caregivers uh, to uh, elderly Israelis and just uh, Israelis that have special needs or something like that. Mm. And that was that was an amazing opportunity. Day to day, our heart's desire from the beginning was to establish a congregation mm. uh, where we live. And we've been able to do that by the grace of God. Uh, the congregation's Amen. about four years old at this point. Mm-hmm. We have a Bible Institute that is over a year running now. We've finished eight courses uh, at this point and mm. uh, just kind of trucking on there. And uh, listen, brother, we do we do a little bit of everything. Um, I can't mm-hmm. say we do anything particularly well. <laughs> um, one of the things that I found when we got here, as I was told by so many people, what you can't do this, you can't do this here, you can't do that mm-hmm. here. This doesn't work. This will get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a good bit of discretion and wisdom involved in, in anything. I think that's true no matter where you are in the world. But we've just decided. Well, we're willing to try anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not just going to set aside something as you know we we can't at least give it a shot. We've knocked on doors, we've done public ministry, literature, conversations, and we stick and move a lot of times, but we try to be as open and available with the gospel as uh, we possibly can, and Mm -hmm. so far, so good. Holding forth the word of life. Just keep putting the word out. Amen. That's exciting. Well, when you're evangelizing, when you're witnessing, do you have to approach Arabs differently than you approach Jews, whom I'm assuming you approach very differently than you would approach someone here in America, typical American. Is there a difference? Oh, a massive difference. There are even differences with how we approach different kinds of Jews. But to specifically answer your question uh, on the Arab side, you know, I remember when I was on deputation, it wasn't common, but there was more than once when somebody said, oh, you're, you're going to the Jewish people, you're going to the Jewish people, this is amazing. And when I would mention, hey, the Bible says that Christ tasted death for every man. Mm. We're not going to particularly focus on any one group, but we're just going to give the gospel to every creature. You know, preach Mm. the gospel to every creature. And some people kind of frowned upon that because, Mm. especially in our circles, ministry to Jewish people is just exciting and interesting and promoted. And in Israel, ministry to the Arab populations is is not so much. Mm. And quite frankly, especially where I live in the Galilee in the north, the ratio is 75%, 25% Arab to Jew. Mm. So there are far more Arabs in in the north of Israel than there are Jewish people. Hmm. So um, you can get a lot farther, a lot quicker in a conversation about the gospel with an Arab as opposed to a Jewish person, simply because that Arab person, no matter what their background is, doesn't have that instant wall regarding mm. Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. Um, if they're an Arab Christian, you know, which is typically here, a Roman Catholic or Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, mm. um, again, they have no problem having a conversation about Jesus. Mm. I- even if they're Muslim, they believe Jesus is a prophet. They have uh, honor and respect towards him. Of course, they don't believe he's the son of God. They don't believe he's the savior. They mm. don't believe he's God manifest in the flesh. But you can at least have a conversation Mm. about Jesus without instantly offending somebody. Whereas if somebody's Jewish, depending upon how religious they are, then even mentioning that name, as the book of Acts uh, uh, so aptly calls him, or talking about that way, as Mm. again is mentioned in the book of Acts, then instantly you have this, I would say not every time, but about 90% of the time, it's just shut down just by the mention of that name. So... Yeah, we're, we're able to have a conversation about Jesus. And of course, with an Arab person, we uh, make sure that we emphasize the fact that he can't possibly be just a good prophet, a good teacher. He said pretty distinctly in a number of instances, directly and indirectly, that he is the son of God, that he can forgive sins. 
and I try to kind of compare what the Quran says about Jesus versus what the Bible says about Jesus. And mm. obviously the Bible has much, much more information about him. It's a much more accurate account mm. of who he is, past, present, and future. Mm. So yeah, there's there, those are kind of the main differences when speaking to an Arab about the Lord. Hmm. You mentioned that there are different groups of Jews. Can you give us just a snapshot of what that looks like? Sure. So you have the percentage of Jewish people in Israel that are on the kind of the religious spectrum. I would say roughly, let's say thirds. So about a third would be secular, hmm. just like a typical typical secular uh, European. Hmm. Atheist, agnostic. Then you have a third, which would be kind of traditional. I would liken that to like your cultural Christians. Mm. Uh, they may or may not wear kippah or the yarmulke. They may or may not probably don't go to synagogue very often, but they'll go on Yom Kippur and on Pesach, on Passover. Uh, they may eat kosher in country, but when they go to Vienna or they go to Thailand or they go to the U.S., then they'll have sausage and bacon and, <laughs> you know, chicken fried steak and whatever. Uh, and then you have your religious, and, and even amongst that percentage of the third of the population that would be religious, even though you have some people that are religious conservative, uh, and then you have your ultra-Orthodox, your the Haredi or the Hasidic hmm. Jews, which is the classic black and white wearing peyote to the long uh, locks of their beard, hmm. very, very, very observant, very strict. Hmm. They don't use uh, smartphones. They don't have the internet. So each of those groups as you can imagine you you'd have to have a pretty different approach when presenting them with the gospel yeah how do those three groups get along with each other for the most part they kind of keep to themselves the traditional third that's kind of in the middle you know everybody's more or less comfortable with them just because they're kind of that lukewarm you know yeah. they're neither hot nor cold and <laughs> you know mankind you know we know that the lord jesus is not uh, happy with that arrangement but mankind mm -hmm. usually is pretty happy with lukewarm yeah <laughs> um, but the atheist, secular Israeli population and the ultra-Orthodox, very religious uh, section of the population, they do not like each other mm. at all for a lot of, and, and for reasons that don't necessarily pertain to religion. They're actually more practical when it comes to daily life in the state of Israel. So one of the biggest reasons is the ultra-Orthodox don't believe in serving in the military. And in mm. Israel, serving in the military is is mandatory mm -hmm. that means that if you're secular you're going to get drafted and if you're religious you're going to use your get out of the draft free card by studying in basically their bible school whether or not you're going to be a rabbi or not mm. and you basically study and get paid by the government to study the torah until you exceed the draft age and then you can do whatever you want and so the secular part of israeli society hates the fact that the, these religious people get out of this national service that their sons and daughters don't have to be sacrificed potentially for war for the security mm. of the country. So that, as you can imagine, is a really, really big, painful sticking point. Yeah. That, that kind of brings up a question that a friend of mine asked. It, it goes along with something that we're talking about here. And his question is, are you able to eat non-kosher food? And then he followed that up with, would that be a wise thing to do? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's non kosher. I mean, listen, non kosher food quite simply is putting a piece of cheese on 
a hamburger, which, mm. you know, you can, you can buy cheese, you can buy a hamburger, you can, you can even go to play. There are non-kosher restaurants here. I remember the church in Tel Aviv that we pastored, which again was in it. There were Jewish people there, but it was largely immigrants from Asia, from North Africa. Those were the two main groups. And within a two minute walk of the church, there was the, this butcher called the Kingdom of Pork. Whole pigs hanging up on, on <laughs> hooks and you just walk by and you're like, oh, okay, Kingdom of Pork, Tel Aviv, Israel, wow. right? So yeah, you can, we, we don't keep kosher. It makes it somewhat challenging if, if somebody wants to come over and eat with us because depending, again, depending upon how seriously they take it, you know, they, the Bible talks about them being partial to the law. Mm. And I kind of liken that to a, a buffet. Take what you want, mm. leave what you don't. And that is mm. the rule here. So when it comes to kosher laws, is your kitchen kosher? Do you have two sets of dishes, one for meat, one for dairy? Do you have two sinks? Do you have two dishwashers? Do you have two refrigerators? Those are all technically what you have to do, and that has nothing to do with putting a piece of cheese on a, on a hamburger. Mm. That's a completely different system. Mm. Some people are very serious about that, and they won't even step foot in your kitchen if you don't have all of those things. Mm -hmm. Some people will say, yeah, or, or even if you're not Jewish, they won't eat anything that you've prepared, even if you do have all of those things. Mm -hmm. And then there's some that will just say, you know, I'll eat with you, but uh, I won't use your silverware. you use plasticware and paper cups for coffee and whatnot. And then there are some that whatever you're making, I'm good with, no big deal. Mm -hmm. So very rarely has it been an issue, but it's not a day-to-day -day thing that we have to encounter. Huh. You talked about doing public ministry and knocking doors. Do you have, I guess I've been under the impression for years that in Israel, uh, churches have to be careful how they, how they witness. Are there restrictions on you? Yeah, so there, there are restrictions, but there's really only two restrictions when it comes to evangelism ministry. And those restrictions are it is illegal to proselytize a minor, mm. so anybody under the age of 18. And it is illegal to offer anything of value for the purpose of conversion. They actually apply that pretty broadly. So that means that we can't say, hey, we're having this meal and we're going to have a service afterwards because they can take that as, oh, you're offering something of value, food, mm -hmm. in order to attract people to come to a religious event. So they, they would interpret that as being basically bribing somebody to convert okay. or, or potentially change their religion. Uh -huh. um, those are the only too. So that means you can give a gospel tract, a Bible to a 19-year-old. You can you can minister publicly. But the way I like to describe it is Israel is actually not all that different from what we read about in the gospels in the first century Judea. And that is that in that timeline, in that time frame, there was actually two streams, two separate streams of government. There was the civil government, which was obviously Roman, and they cared really about only two things, pay your taxes and don't do anything that is going to upset Roman authority. Mm. If you're not rebelling against Rome and you're paying your taxes, worship whatever gods you want, you know, at that mm. particular time, it didn't really matter to them. Mm. And But there was also the religious law, the Pharisaical law, the Sanhedrin, and they cared very much about how you worshipped, when you worshipped, what you said, who is in authority. Mm. And so you see those two streams of law or government battling each other in the Gospels, and even up into the trial of Jesus, how many times did Pilate say, hey, this is, I wash my hands of this, this is not a matter, this is a matter of your law, Right. and yes. they kept kicking it back to him, he kept kicking it back to them, and it wasn't until the Pharisees invoked the civil law and said, uh, essentially, we're going to tell Caesar that you allowed a Jewish king to rise up in his, in his kingdom, and then uh, Pilate said, oh, 
now I all of a sudden care. Right. Because I care about that law. Right. So it very much works the same way in Israel today. There is a civil law, and the civil law, you have to consider that Israel was, was founded as a state by communist socialists from primarily Eastern Europe. Mm. They were not religious. They did not care about uh, the Torah all that much or religion. Mm. They they were communists. You know, David Ben-Gurion, the founder of Israel, the first prime minister, was a communist. Mm. Um, all of the early leaders of Israel were socialists and communists. Mm. So the laws that were established at that point were irreligious. And more or less today, that is still kind of the case. But especially over the past several years, the religious element in Israel has increased in numbers, increased in power, and they care very much. They will take any of those two laws or restrictions that I mentioned, and they will twist it and turn it any which way so that it will cause problems for anybody that is trying to minister in any other way outside of their approved rabbinical authority. So Mm. what does that mean for us practically? That means that, yes, we do have to be careful. The way that the verse that always pops uh, into my mind when I'm describing this is Paul said in 2 Corinthians in his list of kind of the ministry, He one of the things he said was, we are as unknown and yet known. (laughs) And I think that describes what God has done with us perfectly because we are known by many people publicly, privately, who we are, what we're doing, and yet we still maintain a level of anonymity and a level of being unknown that allows us to continue to exist. So when it comes to establishing a church, the typical thing might be uh, you have some people, you're ready to move out of the living room, so to speak, or the garage or whatever, and you rent a property. Well, we could rent a property. We have the finances to do it. We have the legal right to do so, but we live in a very predominantly, almost exclusively Jewish town, and it's becoming more and more religious uh, over the years that we've been here. Mm. Nobody's going to rent to us. If we tell them what we're using the property for, nobody's going to rent for us, even if they did, and this has happened in our town many, many years ago, even if somebody would rent to us because, you know, money answereth all things. Mm. If the rabbinical leadership in our town were to find out, they would first pressure us If that wasn't successful, then they would pressure the landlord, and that ultimately would be successful, and Mm. that we've seen evidence of that happening here. So what we do, we can't buy property, same thing, who's going to sell to us, who's going to build for us, all of those things. So we actually have a really unique situation now. For the past six months or so, we're renting a classroom in a local community college, and this community college is completely owned and operated by Arab Muslims. (laughs) So they don't care who we are, uh, what we believe. As long as the money is good, then... We have good facilities, we have everything we need, we are public, and yet safe and still to a safe degree unknown. So quite uh, quite an interesting way the Lord has worked this wow. out. Almost make yourself more noticeable when you are trying not to be noticed. It's, That's right. I think it's just a, a part of human nature. That's right. I'm ashamed I don't remember this, but I think you have, is it six children? And the oldest is in college now? As a matter of fact, the oldest two are have been out of the house now for three, four years. Wow. Uh, we have a, a daughter that is a nurse in Ohio, and huh. then our oldest son is finishing up his training to be a highway state trooper wow. in Florida. Right on. And you're about the same age as I am, I think. Yes, we're very close. Well, you had a head start then in the kids' department. Started, started <laughs> early and finished early. <laughs> How is the war affecting your wife and your children? 
thankfully, we are in probably one of the safest parts of the country compared to what's going on right now. Mm. Uh, we are about an hour to an hour and a half drive in either direction from the two front lines. We're about uh, less than an hour and a half from Tel Aviv, which gets bombed or rocketed on a daily basis, mm. usually multiple times a day. And then, of course, you go another hour, about an hour further south from that, and you're in Gaza, which is where the fighting actually is. Mm. Uh, and then an hour and a half north of us is the uh, border with Lebanon. And that's Hezbollah, and they are rocketing and mortaring um, again every day, not to the same frequency as what's happening in the center and the south of the country. We've had a couple of rockets that fell close enough that we could hear them, mm. but not feel them. And I always tell people, if you hear a rocket, you hear a boom and you don't feel it, you're okay. If you hear a boom and you feel it, then that got, that got pretty close. So it's been weird, brother, because so many people in our country are daily affected by this mm -hmm. and life in our town for the most part is more or less normal and mm. so it's a strange thing to know that i can just drive an hour away and people are getting sirens every day and having to hide in their bomb shelters and having to hide behind cars if they're out in public and pull off the side of the road and rockets are hitting highways and hitting buildings and mm. and whatnot. And yet life here, kids are in school and school is back in session full time. And mm. we live very close to the northern West Bank. We're only a couple of miles from the border of the, the northern West Bank. And so the biggest fear initially was what happened in Gaza could happen to us as far as the ground infiltration. Mm -hmm. So those first few days were very tense. But for the most part, you know, other than just the, the burden of knowing what's going on, knowing that we know tons of people that have been called up into reserves or their sons or daughters or active duty military and uh, kind of ministering to them and kind of bearing that burden, mm. um, the burden of just knowing what happened on October 7th and the, the images and the videos and, and everything. You just, here, you just can't get away from it. And it's, uh, it's a constant reminder of the brutality that took place there. So everybody's been good. Everybody's, you know, you have your up days and your down days, but so they've all really focused on the opportunities that we've had and uh, we've kept busy enough ministering to people both in to the north of us and to the south of us that you know it's kept us not focused on ourselves which is obviously the purpose of ministry is yes, to um, serve others serve christ and serve others and uh, so that's kept us very level-headed through this yes sir well brother I want to segue a little bit away from the family questions and then come back to that in a little while i know that just being there it does not make anyone an expert but I read your prayer letters, so I can see you understand the book. You understand the Word of God. So I want to ask you about this, replacement theology. For some of our listeners, simply is that through the centuries, many Christians or professing Christians have understood certain New Testament verses to mean that the church has replaced Israel. So the Jewish people are no longer God's people in that view. How do you view that, and what do you say to that? I think that any doctrine that tries to attack in any way Israel's standing at its root, it's, I'll be kind and say that it's at least influenced by unclean spirits and, mm. and it, it's satanic at its core. Mm. All right. One of the things that I always look at in when it comes to replacement theology, which is interesting because, you know, where I live and serve, it's not an issue. 
it's, it's funny because I, I realize that this is a major issue and has been a major issue in the body of Christ for a, a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But as you can imagine, the people that I minister to and the, the Jewish believers here, they, they don't have any questions about, uh, you know, have we been replaced as God's chosen people? They, they mm-hmm. understand their their place both positionally as as israel and then now as uh, members of the body of christ Mm. um but one of the things you know there's so many places in the old testament where god does actually put conditions he puts conditions on this relationship that he has with israel but when he puts those conditions on there um, it's it's almost as if he sets the standard so impossibly high. It's almost like righteousness. It's so impossibly high, hmm. it could never be met. Hmm. And one of my favorite places to reference when it comes to these conditional promises of the relationship that Israel has with, with her God is uh, Jeremiah 31. Hmm. And of course, this is the famous chapter that mentions that new covenant, which is in Hebrew, it's the Hadashah, which is what we call the New Testament hmm. here. It's a great verse to show a Jewish person that says, oh, the New, the New Testament is, is for Gentiles. It's not Jewish. And they say, oh, we actually get that from the, the exact phrase in Hebrew comes from your Bible, the Jewish mm. Bible. But in verse 34, 35 of uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 34, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Mm. All right. And then here comes the conditions. Verse 35, thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. All right. Verse 36, if those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, (laughs) then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. <laughs> All right. Mm. Now we go back to verse 35 and say, okay, what ordinances is he referring to from verse 36? Okay. He says the sun for light by day. All right. So last I checked, the sun still shines has ever since it was put up there by the word of God. Uh-huh. And as long as I wake up in the morning and see the sun, then I know that that relationship has not been severed between Israel and and her God. All right. Mm. The moon by night, the stars by night. I still see those every time I go to bed. The sea, people like to talk about global warming and the loss of land mass and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, no matter how you look at it, the sea is still there and the waves are still <laughs> roaring. And as long as those ordinances are still there, then that relationship is still intact. Is that relationship strained massively? Has it been strained massively for quite a long time? Absolutely. There's no debate about that. Mm. But we know that those are the only conditions that God ever put. He will cast them away if those conditions are met, those ordinances cease, and those ordinances have not ceased, nor will they cease. Amen. And then, of course, you go Amen. to Romans 11, that back and forth play between how the Lord views the body of Christ and how the Lord views Israel and what that relationship between those two entities are supposed mm. to be. And uh, he just makes clear in so many, I mean, you could really read the whole chapter, but you could see that there is still a place for Israel. Hmm. And again, living here where we live, we see that not all of Israel is is in unbelief. You know, Israel today has about 30,000 Jewish believers in the Messiah Jesus. Wow. That's oh. a massive number compared to what it's been 30, 40 years ago. Wow. And, uh, and it's growing. It's not growing maybe by leaps and bounds, but it is growing. So not all Israel is Israel in, in a state of unbelief. There mm. is a section of Israel 
that are also members of the body of Christ. Mm. And of course, you know, there's still the promise, there's the present day, and this is actually the verse that I, I use for our ministry, uh, Romans eleven twenty five. for I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become mm. in. And one thing I like to highlight in that passage when it comes to replacement theology is that even in that verse, if you take out two words from that verse, then maybe you can justify some replacement theology. But it mm. says that blindness in part yes. is happened to Israel. Mm. So that means, and again, I can report with my own eyes and ears that there is a part that has not been blinded. There is a part that has had the veil lifted mm. and see them in their sin and see Jesus as the solution for their sin and Amen. as the the sole source of righteousness. Amen. And um, mm. and then verse 26 is the future promise, and so all Israel shall be <laughs> saved. That is, uh, you know, a reference to Zechariah. That is a reference to many of the prophecies in the Old Testament that show that future Israel has a place. They've not been replaced. They've not even really been set aside. They have just, God has made this great allowance for the Gentiles to be grafted in. Mm. And in God's overall plan, we are but a footnote in mm. what is the really from beginning to end, the story of God's dealing with mm. Israel and how Israel is going to be the conduit of truth and righteousness for the world mm. without end. Amen. I think a lot of people that believe in replacement theology, one question I would ask them is, well, okay, well, do you believe in eternal security? Mm. And many of them would probably say, well, yes, of course, I believe in eternal security. Okay, mm. well, if God has made you a promise, and you believe that that promise is, is not voidable, all right, it is without repentance, mm. then has God made Israel promises? What makes mm. you think that God would promise something to Israel and then void it and make you a promise and not void it? If God would That's good. so easily yeah. cast away his promises to his people, then you and I should be very, very concerned. Because let's be frank, <laughs> we are just as guilty of disobedience, of backsliding, of sullying the name of God, mm. of his reputation. Everything that Israel can be accused of by uh, uh, somebody that ascribes to replacement theology, we have done. Yeah. So of how much sore punishment and judgment are we going to be under? And mm. thankfully, our God is a covenant-keeping God. He's yeah. going to keep his covenant with us, and he's going to keep his covenant with Israel. Amen. Amen. That is profound, that if God would break his promises to Israel, what's to say he will not break his promises to believers in Christ? And he does not break his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. Thank you. That was very helpful. Transitioning back to family. You mentioned your family ministering, and when you said that, my ears perked up because the way my father raised me was not what I've seen typically in pastors' homes, that it's either family or it's ministry, and I've seen pastors really lean too heavy on either one. The way my father raised me was, we do both and we do them together. My father involved me and my sister in ministry, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that means, what that looks like when it's not just dad or dad and mom in ministry, but kids are as well? Yes, I, I realized very early on when we began serving here that my wife and my children are going to have, I don't think it's ambitious to say, more of an impact mm. 
industry-wise than even I would, which again is completely backwards to the whole deputation process because you're the star of the show and yeah. you're the you know the head of the family and it's right. it's Mo and everybody else. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, this idea I got here. Number one, Israel is a very matriarchal society. That mm. doesn't mean that men are not men. But the stereotypical Jewish mother, mm. you know, the, the influence and the sway that she has is um, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's also a, a society that children are a big part of what's going on here. This is such a huge difference from Germany, where, you know, mm. imagine six, six children walking in with mom and dad into a restaurant in Germany. Most people looked at us with their 1.2 kids and said... <laughs> What is wrong with you people? You know, <laughs> whereas here our family size fits in. You know, this mm. is this Israel. I think has the highest birth rate in OECD countries mm. because we have two demographics that are prolific in procreation. We have religious Jews and we have Muslim Arabs. All have mm. a very high number of number of children. Mm. So with the children and with the matriarchal nature of society, I knew that my family was going to be instrumental. Mm. And they have they have created more contact points, more yeah. touch points, more opportunities per kilogram than I have <laughs> by far. Amen. Um, and it, it's just been amazing. My children are in the local conservatory and they have over the past four or five years built an amazing reputation mm. in that school. They've been featured nationally uh, three of my children are in the city band any city event whether it's a memorial or a holiday or whatever it might be they're there mm. my children and another friend of theirs just recorded an especially arranged version of the israeli national anthem hatikva mm. uh, which means the hope which was arranged by my oldest son that's still here with us huh. and it got sent out on social media not just in our city but around the country wow. and it's just you know shot and produced here in our living room wow. so that just opens doors with us being able to meet people minister to people who are you why are you you know all of those questions yeah yeah. And uh, same thing could be said with my wife. I mean, my wife has made so many, many contacts. The first Jewish person that received Christ in, in quote, unquote, our ministry was led to the Lord by my wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, just right, you know, at the beginning of the COVID period. Mm -hmm. So the just them being a part of society here in as many ways as we can, being involved with other families, with schools, with music, with whatever has been probably one of the single most fruitful parts of the ministry and that's been mostly them i've just mm. been picking up the leftovers after uh, after their work and it's been it's been phenomenal to see the, how the lord's used them amen that's that's very encouraging dad <laughs> it's very encouraging i've heard it said many times that our role as dads is basically to prepare our kids to go farther and go beyond anything we could ever do and our greatest ministry might actually be just raising our kids. And of course, we're thinking about getting the gospel to the whole world, and that's what we're doing. We're all a part of that, but we can't let our family get lost in that, and really, our family is our greatest tool. Well, what are some of the life skills that you're you're teaching or trying to teach your children or, or setting them up to be taught? One of the avenues that we've used recently, when I say recently, I mean the last 
three years or so that has been very, very fruitful in a number of different areas is martial arts and specifically jujitsu. It was a COVID activity that mm-hmm. kind of blossomed into more. Hmm. And one of the, the classes that I teach our kids in our, in our homeschool curriculum is basically these different principles that come from jujitsu that apply in life in ministry, in relationships, in business, in dealing with emotions, every aspect of life. Mm. And so when it comes to like pound for pound feedback and help that has been good for my family, especially our children, that one activity Mm. has uh, really, really helped. One of the things that it teaches is awareness and and doing something about problems, not being a bystander, mm. um, and doing things the right way, doing things under control. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible tells us to let our moderation be known unto all men. And so, this idea of how to control yourself and how to control a bad situation and do something hard mm. um, has been just extremely valuable from a, a life skills perspective. Uh, Our children have stood up not to bullies that are encountering or engaging them, but to other people that are being bullied in their sphere because they know how to handle it and they know how to handle it in a safe way for everybody involved. Mm. And uh, it's been a great testimony to their peers. So I'm, I'm excited. I've been really excited about that. I mean, I'm an older man, you know, we're, we're getting to be older men faster <laughs> and faster. And uh, so doing something like this was, uh, was kind of strange at my age, but yeah. it's been so good teaching just basic things that are going to profit our children long after our bodies no longer can twist itself and not. Yeah. That reminds me of that verse, is it, in Leviticus, talking about taking the scapegoat out into the wilderness, and it says, by the hand of a fit man. By the hand of a fit man. That didn't mean an intellectual man. That didn't mean a man who was emotionally stable. It included that, I'm sure, but it was talking about physically fit. God is not against us being physically fit. But yeah, some of us, mid-40s and some of our listeners probably are a little bit beyond us. And man, it's easy to fall into that mindset that I'm getting old. I can't do the things I used to do with my kids, so I'm not going to do anything. We've just got to force ourselves to get out there and throw a ball or do some jiu-jitsu. I, I don't even want to think about that myself, actually. But that leads into another question I wanted to ask you. You'd mentioned, ah, oh, man, it's been a few years now, but when your firstborn son, I think it was, finished reading through the Bible a few years ago, you had mentioned that you rewarded him with a pretty memorable experience. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is actually something that we've done with all of our children. So it's actually our daughter was the first one who uh, who finished reading her Bible through from beginning to end. And I kind of adapted this principle from a pastor that I, I respect in the States. What I did was I wanted to make a memory. And so mm. the deal that we have with our children is when they complete reading the Bible for the first time, then we are going to do something that neither of us have ever done before. That is the requirement. Mm. We have to go and do something we've never done before. And uh, so with my daughter, the first one that finished, we were still living in Germany at the time. And so we rented, (laughs) or I rented, a uh, 40 Mercedes-Benz car, something that I'd never done before. And uh, (laughs) we drove that car from where we live to uh, a place about an hour away, and we went rock climbing. Mm. 
uh, you know, indoor facility, something I'd never done before. And so since then, our son, our oldest son, we went on a helicopter tour of, oh. of our part of Germany. He was wow. very interested in aviation. I'd, I'd never been in a helicopter tour in Germany before. I'd been in <laughs> helicopters, but as a part of the military, different story. <laughs> and then we got here. Uh, to Israel and our oldest son that is still with us when he finished we went to the top of Mount Hermon mm. uh, the highest point of Israel and had a great time up there I'd never been there he'd never been there so mm. we went the next son we took a one-day flight left early in the morning came back late at night to Cyprus uh, oh. which is only about a 50 minute less less than an hour flight from israel mm. went to the biblical sites where barnabas was from ah. uh, the first place that paul and uh, barnabas went on their missionary journey <clears throat> and got to see that ancient site uh-huh. and we've both flown before but never flown one place and then flown back home later that same day so it was a memory oh, neat. yeah so and, and just something memorable but the other thing that we do with with our children whenever that day takes place is I always ask them what, because usually they're around, depending upon, I think our daughter at the time was maybe like 11. They're usually around that age when they finish the first time, at least that's mm. been our experience. And we take a Bible and I say, I want you to write in the back of your Bible, the 10 things that you're looking for in a spouse. And this is where the direct connect with the, with the teaching that I heard that kind of inspired this, this event. And before the hormones go haywire and, mm-hmm. and all of those things, and they're kind of still in their, in their right mind, so to speak. And so they write down the things that they're looking for in a spouse. Mm. And uh, we talk about them. We go over them. I think oftentimes if um, it's a good litmus test to see kind of where you're at as a parent, because if it's a, uh, if it's your daughter, then the list should look an awful lot like you mm. as, as the father. If it's a son, the list should look an awful lot like mom. Mm-hmm. And then they hold on to that. And as life goes on, and if they start to make some, some interesting choices and kind of stray from, <laughs> from that a little bit, you have something that they wrote, mm. that they wrote back before their teenage years at the anniversary of, of completing their Bible for the very first time. And it's just a powerful reminder. It's a, it's a tether mm, that uh, I've seen be, be very useful and, yeah. uh, and, and I'm hoping will be useful in the future. So yeah. yeah, that's what we do with our, with our children when they finish for the first time with the scriptures. That is excellent. What are the five books that you would most recommend for parents to read to or with your children? Well, let's get the easy one off the bat. You know, you have to read the scriptures with your children. There's just so much fruit, so much opportunity for discussion in that. I'll tell you a book that was given to me that we really cherish, and it's called Blast from the Ram's Horn. And it's, it's a compilation. It's an older book. I can't remember exactly when it was published, but it is, you remember those cartoons? I think there was a brother by the name of Pace that did these like, uh, almost like old school newspaper editorial cartoons, but yeah. they were scriptural. Yeah. There's uh, there's two gentlemen, Pace was one of them, I can't remember the other one that was well known, and these are back in like the 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe 50s that these were done. Yeah. This book is kind of a, it includes things like that. Okay. It includes just short stories and poems and witty sayings, but it's all, it's all scriptural. It's all scriptural Mm. admonitions. It's all scriptural principles. It's new. It's different. It's fresh. That's been in one of our devotion books that kind of goes in and out of the rotation quite often. And again, you have pictures, you have words, you have just a great combination and it really leaves an impact. We're just so thankful for the sister at a church in Minnesota that gave us that book. And I'd never heard of it and thought, oh, it's just a cool old book, you know, Mm. but so much more in it. So yeah, that's been a really good one. 
Mm-hmm. One that I have found recently that we're actually in the midst of reading as a family is called In His Steps by Charles Monroe Sheldon. Mm-hmm. And it's a fictional work that reads like nonfiction. And again, it's set in probably the late 1800s uh, America, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of where the phrase, what would Jesus do, kind of came from. And that, right. that phrase has been really milked out and wrung out and played out, I think, for certainly in our circles as far as our view on it. But the book is is just fantastic, just Mm. how God changes a town through a local church, Mm. starting with the pastor and filtering down to the members of the church and how they just gave up and sacrificed and lost and gained based off of just that uh, answering that simple question in a practical way. Mm. What would Jesus do in Mm. this situation? And then committing themselves for a year, I think the book said, to, uh, to do what they believe Jesus would do in every situation, no matter the cost. Hmm. And uh, just a just a great great story, easy yeah. to read, very well written, mm-hmm. very engaging. So that's been a really good one. Mm-hmm. I read that oh about twenty years ago, but I remember thinking doctrinally there's some problems I have with it. But just the question, what would Jesus do? How that would change a family? How that could change a neighborhood? Yeah, how that would change my life if I did that? Thanks for reminding me of that. I'd forgotten about that book. I'll tell you another series of books, you know, I, you know, if I can use this to take three, four and five or four and five, oh, sure. you know, I, I'll, I'll cheat, but if yeah, not, sure. no a, problem. a good <laughs> series of books we've read as a family is called Way of the Warrior Kid. And uh, it's by a man that's very popular in many circles today by the name of Jocko Willink. He's yeah. a former Navy SEAL, writes all kinds of books on leadership and military yeah. and whatnot. But he writes kids' books. And, you know, what's really interesting is that he sees the value of instilling things into children at a young age mm. uh, and not waiting until they're, they're too old. And uh, basically, they're just the story of a kid named Mark, named after Mark Lee, who was the first Navy SEAL killed in Iraq. Hmm. who was uh, one of Jocko Willink's teammates and uh, who is a believer. That's an amazing testimony. If you've not heard the story of Mark Lee, it's as a believer, he has a really, really powerful testimony. Hmm. And his mother is doing a really great job kind of uh, using that tragedy for the sake of the gospel. But at any rate, Mark is just a kid, you know, starts off when he's late elementary school age and he is kind of wimpy and kind of uh, effeminate and kind of, uh, you know, misplaced in what he thinks is important. And he has a, an uncle, Uncle Jake, modeled after Jocko Willink, a Navy SEAL. And uh, through Uncle Jake, he learns these life lessons on how to deal with stress, how to deal with bullies, how to deal with bad relationships with teachers, reading, the importance of reading, you name it, diet, exercise, doing the right thing, helping people, reaching out. And again, just simple, really engaging. I think there's a, there's like four or five in the series that he's okay. done so far. My, my kids have absolutely loved it. Absolutely mm. loved it. Yeah. So those are the ones that kind of come off the top of my head. That's good. Good list. Okay, this question is very similar to what I just asked you, but this is more along the lines of your books, in your mind, in your heart, in your life. Imagine, brother, if you could somehow be forewarned that you were going to be stuck on a deserted island, and you could somehow take the five books that you would want to have with you. What books would you take? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting question because I thought, you know, it's really easy to just take books that you like, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also really easy just to kind of virtue signal and just make yourself look a certain way. Yeah. I really tried to approach this uh, in a very pragmatic way. I mean, I'm, I'm literally going to be on a deserted island. One of my thoughts was I need to take one of the biggest books I could possibly find because I might need it for like firewood or I might need to like eat the pages <laughs> or something one day. I didn't go that route, but uh, I really kind of focused on what I actually thought would be the most useful and most practical. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, goes without saying, I would take the scriptures with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you would, would need that to survive. I actually have Blast from the Ram's Horn uh, as one of the books that I would take, even mm-hmm. if I was alone. Because again, it's just, it's almost like a daily bread kind of uh-huh. a situation. There's a balanced diet, and I'm sure that there would be something that I would need every day huh. uh, if I were to read, just something to encourage me, something to keep me sane, something to yeah. keep me grounded that is scriptural. So I would definitely take that book with me. Mm. One book that I would also take would be the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, and it is, again, by Jocko Willink. Yep. Uh, I have a number of his books. This one, again, it's a field manual. In the military, a field manual is basically how to do something that you need to know how to do to execute a mission. Hmm. So it's not a book in the sense of like it's stories or principles. It's it's almost like a, a reference. Okay. And so many things in that book from the perspective of practical things to do, fear, mindset, exercise. I mean, you name it. It's just one of those things that I feel like if I were on a deserted island, it would be something that would that I would need to refer to. It's like, okay, I, I need to do this or I need to remember this today. That would mm-hmm. be that would be pretty helpful. So that would be one that I would take with me. There's a book that I read recently called Outlive mm. by Peter Ataya. He's a physician and it's a, it's a fairly new book. I think it was published last year, if I'm not mistaken. And again, it really talks about basic things you can do from a physiological perspective and even a mental perspective to live longer. You know, and I figure if I'm on a desert island, one of the things that I would need to commit to do is to, is just to outlive, outlive my situation. Mm. And uh, again, it's a reference book. It would be very, very practical for me to read and be reminded of some things that I need to do to not just survive, but to truly thrive in that kind of an environment. And then the last book that I have on my list is called Prayer Revival by Benny Beckham. Mm. I would imagine, again, in that situation, my prayer light needs to be on point. And it's such a great book on prayer and fasting, mm-hmm. um, but really emphasizing prayer okay. and the importance of it. And just the way he approaches the subject is extremely, extremely helpful. It's been a real blessing to me. The book is almost like a, a course book, a textbook uh-huh. right. uh, for a college course. And so in our Bible Institute, it is a course that we teach and using that book. And so I think that'd just be extremely helpful in that kind of a situation. Okay. Very good. I think I've got that book, but I haven't read it. So, again, thanks for reminding me about that. (laughs) Thank you so much for spending some time with me, and thanks for the insight and the information and the inspiration. Praise God, brother. This was uh, very enjoyable and uh, thankful for the opportunity. Well, thanks so much. If you heard something helpful today or feel better equipped to lead your family, Maybe you have a friend who could benefit from this episode, too. Don't keep it to yourself. Hit share in your podcast app or take a screenshot of this episode and share it with a friend. Or just post a link on Facebook to treasureboxbooks.com and let your friends know that this episode might encourage them. You can find any links and resources mentioned today on the episode page linked below or just head over to treasureboxbooks.com 
and sign up to get our newsletter to keep you informed about future episodes and product releases. And if you've got a book recommendation or experience or idea you'd like to share with other dads, send me an email. My address is nathan at treasureboxbooks.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until we meet again, keep leading your family to find the treasures in books.